0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Now, we've had trouble with all kinds of stuff. But anyway, 1 Samuel chapter 1. I read a book last year uh, by David Brooks. David Brooks is a a conservative. uh, He's a Christian conservative commentator. And he wrote a book called The Second Mountain. Uh, in this book, he, he really, the whole preface is that when our, our young people, when our children, uh, they graduate high school, they go to college, they graduate college, they, they look at their life as, I've just reached the top of this mountain. This, this mountain was my goal. I was looking to, for graduation. I was looking for a career, and now I've graduated. I've got it. And they, they reach the peak of this mountain, but then they, they look in the distance, and they realize there's a, a second mountain that they need to climb. Uh, It talks about the frustrations that a lot of young people feel as they kind of begin their life as independent adults. They leave college, you know, they're inspired, they're empowered. But in reality, and I know we had, you know, Haley just recently graduated. And so, you know, she's like, man, I got the, you know, I know everything. In reality, they're clueless. They don't know what life is. They don't know what's going on. And so they, they're, they're full of this, this energy and this excitement and this inspiration, and they really don't know what life is all about. And so they still struggle with the questions that all of us face. What makes me happy? Where do I find true joy in my life? You know, what, what really makes life matter? What makes life have a purpose? Is it, is it a career? Is it a spouse, a family, I have, You know, what is it that I need to pursue in life? And he says this in the book. He says, many young people are graduating into limbo, floating and plagued by uncertainty. They want to know what specifically they should do with their lives. And he talks, the book's not just about young people. It's really to uh, the older generation. Uh, you know the, the the greatest generation, which is the Generation X that I'm in. I know some of you think, nah, greatest bad. no greatest generation," but no, 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 it's us. Uh, so it's talking about to this to this this Generation X generation, who's you know raised Millennials, who didn't do much good, and so now we're trying to help Generation Y. It's talking about you know how we are to relate to them and usually how we treat them. And he says that when they when they go out in life, we we hand them this great big empty box of freedom. You know, say, man, now you've got all your freedom. You're, you're on your own. You can make your own decisions. Freedom leads to happiness. You know, we're not going to impose our desires on you anymore. You can do whatever you want. You can enjoy your freedom. And after, they do for a while, but after a while, they realize that box of freedom doesn't really bring happiness. Doesn't really bring fulfillment. So they, they put that back box down. Uh, freedom is useless if you can't determine what path you're going to take in life. So we give them another empty box, the box of possibilities. Your future is limitless. You can do anything that you set your mind to. The journey is the destination. We tell them, take risks. But if you don't know what the purpose of your life is, what's the benefit or what's the purpose of taking risk? If you don't really have a goal in mind for your life, limitless possibility doesn't really do anything. So then we give them a box of authenticity. You know, go, go find your inner person. You are unique. You are a snowflake. You are a sunbeam. You're a Skittle. You're, you're better than anyone else. You're so much, you're, you're unique in an individual person. Find your own truth. But this is useless too, because looking to yourself to find answers is pointless when you don't really know who you are, and you don't really know what life has for you. So they put that box down and start looking for something to inspire them. So then he says, we give them the emptiest box of all, of all, the box of autonomy. You are your own person. It's up to you to define yourself. It's up to you to figure out your own values, for you to decide what is right and wrong in life. But none of that helps answer the question they really have, how do I find significance? We're going to begin a new series today trying to answer that question. We're going to begin by looking at the life of David. To say that David is an important character in the Bible is a massive understatement. We have more biographical material on David than anyone else in the Bible except for Jesus. Apart from the story of his life in First and Second Samuel, David is mentioned 241 times in the Bible. He's mentioned 182 times in the Old Testament and 59 times in the New Testament. To the Jewish people, David is more than just a historical figure. He is an icon. He is a symbol of their past greatness and the future hope that God has given them. His story is an epic drama. He begins his life as an obscure Forgotten shepherd boy, the runt of the family. He's picked on, he's ridiculed, he's mocked, but he, he has courage of a lion and he goes out and he kills Goliath and, and skyrockets from some forgotten boy in the shepherd to the most popular, most well-known person in all of Israel. Eventually, he becomes their greatest king. Every king after David is compared to David. He either love the lord and walk with god like david or he didn't unlike david so everybody is compared to david he's also israel's most prolific songwriter 90% of the psalms that we he have and we read are written by david and the, Psalm, the Psalms to us are, are good, good passages. We, we write them on you know, pretty pictures and hang them around our, our house and we memorize them and they're good things to run to. But to Israel, they're a songbook. It's their praise to God. Despite, you know, the Bible even, God calls David a man after his own heart. Despite that. Despite how close he is to God, how much he knows God, how much he loves God, his personal sins destroy his life, his family, and eventually the nation of Israel. His story is more than just an interesting story to us. His story shows us a pattern of Christianity, how we are to walk with God and worship God, and come back to God. His story occurs during a time when Israel demands a king. Until this point, God was their king, and he was supposed to be their king for all of eternity. But they're they're looking around the nations around them. They say, man, these other nations have a king. We need a king. We don't want a judge anymore. We don't want a priest anymore. We want a king to rule over us. They believe that a human king will give them the prosperity and the security that they think they're missing, but God has been giving them all the time. That's where David's story connects with your story. We are all searching, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, how young you are, or where you are in your life, your career, we are all searching for the same thing that Israel was searching for, identity, identity, security, and happiness. First thing we look for, we look for identity. And don't get excited. These are not my points. These are just subpoints. before I get to the points. I was telling Lexi, and told April this week, you know, typically my sermons, they're, they're 12 pages of notes front and back, but, you know, they're 24 point cause, so I can see them without my reading glasses and I can see them from here. So 12 point, 12 pages front and back, you know, takes me a little, you know, I'm usually done by 1210, by 1215. Uh, uh, these last several weeks when I've been talking about tithes and offerings, my, my notes have been like eight or nine pages because I hate doing that. This week, as I sat down to prepare this message, 23 pages, front and back, I whittled it down to 14, so, but it's good, well, I like it, you may not like it, I think it's great, but anyway, identity, all of us are looking for something that gives us significance, that gives us self-worth, that people can, when they think about you, think that's what they, that's what they're like, that's what they're about, that's who they are. You know, maybe your your identity is found in your intelligence. Maybe it's found in how much money you make. Maybe it's in your your looks, your health, your family. And here's the thing. We can tell what our identity is by what we struggle comparing ourselves to other people over. You know, you see a, a post on Facebook or Instagram, and you know, this, this wife makes these beautiful cookies. And you don't care about the cookies, you're looking at her kitchen thinking, how come her kitchen is nicer than my kitchen? You look at her, her Facebook post with her and her kids, and you know, today's Mother's Day, so there's all kinds of Mother's Day posts going out, and you're like, oh, they, her kids said such wonderful, sweet things about her, how come my kids don't say that about me? Because it's Facebook and people lie on Facebook. <laughs> She's not the world's greatest mom, they just don't want to get in trouble that day. And now y'all are thinking, well, you said your wife's still, yeah, she is. You know, everybody else is a liar. She's the world's greatest mom. Everybody else is a liar. But we look at, like, oh, how come I can't have a house like that? How come I can't have a car like that? How come my husband doesn't say things like that about me? How come my wife doesn't treat me that way? How come, you know, I went to school and I got a degree and I'm struggling in my career and this guy who barely got through. Look, I struggle with that. There are people I graduated a college with who I am shocked they graduated. I'm not saying they were dumb as a box of rocks. That's insulting to rocks. They were stupid, but they graduated. I look at them in ministry, and I'm like, how are they doing so well? They are dumb. They are ridiculous. Or I know how they were in college. I'm like, I know what that kid did in the dorms when nobody was looking. I know what he's like. How come he's doing so well? And here I am, I'm trying to do everything right. I seem to be struck. So we all struggle with this identity, this comparing ourselves to other people. We base our self-worth on how we stack up to everyone else. Second thing we're looking for is security. What do you look for to determine that your life and your future is going to be okay? As long as I have blank. Everything's going to be okay. What do you fill that blank in with? As long as I have my children, life will be okay. As long as I have my husband or my wife, everything will be okay. As long as I have my retirement fund, everything's going to be fine. For me, as long as I have Scarlett, everything's fine. As long as I got her... Everything else can go to pot. Everybody else can leave me as long as i got scarlet. I love you, baby. As long as i got scarlet, I'm good. Whatever you thought of is where your security is. Whatever you thought, well, as long as I have this, that's your security. Third thing we're all looking for is happiness. What makes life feel like it's worth living for you? What is the one thing that if you lost it, you would have no joy? You would struggle to not be miserable in life. You know, you think, my life would be miserable if I lost whatever. And look, you could put the same thing in there with your security. If I lost my job, my life would be miserable. If I lost my, lost my kids, my life would be miserable. If I lost my husband, my life would not be worth having any joy. If you're like Lexi, if I lost my phone, my life would be pointless. We all have those things that bring us identity, security and happiness. The search for identity, security and happiness, it's it's what we are all looking for and it's what the story of David is all about. Now this morning as we start looking at the story of David, we're going to start by looking at another story, the story of Hannah. Matter of fact, we're going to be 4 weeks into this series before we even get to David. We'll talk to David in week about David in week 5. We're just laying a firm foundation. For David's life. So go ahead and get your Bibles open to um, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah's story really sets up the narrative of David's life. Every theme that we looked at security, identity, happiness every theme is introduced here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning with the life of Hannah. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathah, that place, uh, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Eliakah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tobai, the son of Zupai, an Ephraite, And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panini. And Panini had children. Look, April's going to dispute with me that it's pronounced that way. I I had it. I looked it up. It's Panini. Anyway, where was I? Panini uh, Panini had children, but Hannah had no children. So right off the bat, we're introduced to three people here. Eliaka and his two wives, Panini and Hannah. And we get some important information about them right off the bat. Panini can have children. She has a lot of children. Hannah has none. She has no children. So keep reading verse number three. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was come, and when the time was that Eliakah offered, he gave to Penini, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord... Had shut her womb. So every year they traveled to the tabernacle. They would offer sacrifices during the Day of Atonement, probably the Day of Pentecost, but are uh, not the Day of Pentecost of Passover. And so every year they would go there. They would offer these sacrifices. And they would have a a meal together. They would sit down after the the sacrifice is done, and and during even the Day of Atonement, they would uh, offer the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was burned for them, and then you would take the lamb back, and you would eat the roasted, sacrificial lamb uh, as a a worship to God. And so they go back, and they're having this meal together, and during this meal, uh, Eliaka, he's serving everybody up, and he's cutting up the the, the meat or whatever he's doing, and he gives Penaini and her sons, he gives them their portion what, what, it, you know, he, he serves them. But then the Bible says he gives, uh, he gives to Hannah a worthy portion because he loves her. Now I had this in my notes, but I took it out, but it's just so funny. When I looked into this, because a lot of translations call it a double portion, so I've read the commentaries on this, and they're all like, well, what he, he, he gave her extra food that he, he, you know, it wasn't due her just to show her he loved her. But I looked up in the Hebrew, and I, could, I, I think it's funny because I took two years of Hebrew, and I got a D, but still managed to pass with uh, Magna Cum Laude because I had other grades. So Hebrew is not my forte. But when you look at the Hebrew, uh, A-worthy means first nose. I don't know what that means. I don't know if he gave her Eskimo kisses before he served people. I don't know if he shoved a, a, you know some mashed potatoes in her face. I don't know what it means, but I, just, I spent way too much time trying to figure out what his first nose mean. All I can tell from every commentary I've read, he gave her more food. The purpose isn't what he did. The point of it is why he did it. He did it because he loved her. Despite the fact she couldn't have kids, which is a big thing we're going to get to in a minute. Look at verse 6 and her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut her womb. Obviously, there are some issues with this family. You know, he's got two wives. One, he obviously loves. It's obvious to her. It's obvious to Penaini that Hannah is the most loved wife and Penaini is bothered by this because she should be. She's given him sons. She's given him kids. Hannah's done nothing for him. And so there's some issues here. So, so makes takes every opportunity she has to hurt and to attack uh, uh, Hannah. And she does it in the way that is most to be most hurtful, the fact that she cannot have children. You know, the Bible says that God had closed her womb. But we're not told why. Did he, did he close her womb because of some sin she had in her life? Because of something her husband had done? Now we find out later it's because God was going to use her for his glory. But let's look at verse 7. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the, to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. As we begin our study on David, I want to see uh, a few things that we learn about Hannah and we can learn from her life. First thing I want to look at is number one, I'm going to look at her hurt. Hannah's hurt. Her hurt was rooted in the fact that she could not have children. It was so bad and she was being ridiculed so much by this other wife that she, she couldn't eat. Now, being barren, uh, is hard on any woman in any time or in any culture but even more so with her children were at the time they were a sign of god's blessing they were a sign of god's provision for you in the future they they lived in an agrarian society they they everybody farmed now today we think of farming as these mass kind of industries, and and they, they have these huge machines, and, you know, most of it is done by automation, or they hire work out, but, but at this time, everybody had a small farm. Everybody had cows or sheep to look after. They all had fields they planted to get crops for themselves, crops to sell to make money so they could survive, and so the more sons you had, the more workers you had for the fields, so the more you were, you were able to provide for your family, the more money you would make, and so having children and having son specifically was a sign of prosperity your children were also your retirement plan you know the more kids you had meant you were better taken care of in your old age that's my retirement plan as well I'm hoping my kids will make a whole lot of money and remember how I've always no matter when no matter how mean they are to me when they ask me for ice cream I get them ice cream so they're gonna put me in a nice home and not some flea bag motel one day I'm hoping they're going to remember. Dad took care of me, so I'm going to take care of Dad. So make a lot of money and take care of Dad. Kids are their retirement plan. So the more kids you had, the better taken care of you were in your old age. The economic and military health of the nation was dependent on more sons being born. So if a woman had a lot of sons, a lot of children, specifically sons, she was seen as a blessing to the nation for Israel. The whole promise of God was dependent on them having sons because God promised to give them this land forever. And their family's portion was contingent on them having sons to give the land to. So if you didn't have any children, if you didn't have any sons, it was like your family was being cut off from the promise of God. Having kids was the main thing that women did in this time. It is where they found value. Now, look, it's not, I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be. That's the culture. That's, so don't be, well, preacher said, no, preacher did not say. I didn't say your only value is having a child. I said in this time, during Hannah's time, that's what they thought. Not me. Blame them. Not me. So anyway, that's where she found value. That's where she found significance. Uh, Old Testament scholar William Bergenman, He said, barrenness in any ancient text is the effective metaphor of hopelessness. For without children, there is no foreseeable future for yourself, your family, or your people. Now, we don't put that amount of value on having children in our culture anymore. But we do have things we put value on. We do have our own idea of what makes someone significant what makes someone valuable. For Hannah, the only thing that gave her value in society's eyes, the only thing that gave her value in her culture's eyes was the one thing she didn't have. To make matters worse, her her rival had a lot of kids. And use that fact to torment her. Back in verse uh, 6 where it says he also pro- uh, her adversary also provoked her sore. Provoked her sore, it, it's more than just, you know, kind of irritating her. Like, you know how your kids used to do to each other, or I do to, to Lexi sometimes, where I'm like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. You know, you get real close, I'm not touching you, you can't tell mom I'm not touching you. I do that to Lexi. Uh, just why? Because I can't. Because uh, it irritates her. It's more than that. The Hebrew word here, to provoke her sore, um, It's a word that is typically used in the Hebrew to describe a hurricane. It's the only time it's ever used in Scripture to define to describe how someone felt. She felt inside a hurricane of hurt and rage and pain and disappointment and agony. She could not find any relief. Her heart is a tormented hurricane of unhappiness, frustration and insecurity let's look at verse number 8 then said Eliaka, her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, look, guys, never ask a woman why are you crying why aren't you eating baby Don't have, um, why weepest thou, why eatest thou not and why is our heart grieved, am I not better than, to thee than ten sons, man, typical man right, honey calm down you got me, and I'm all you need, baby. That's all you need. Not to Hannah. She's like, no. I, I, he's, thinking, he's thinking, you don't need to have kids. I got this other woman to have kids. I got you for her other stuff, man. Baby, I'm all you need. And Hannah's like, no, you not. So typical guy. Uh, look at verse number uh, 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon the seat Uh, by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. See, what's, what's great about Hannah is she doesn't allow her pain to drive her away from God. She, uses, she allows her pain to drive her to God. She has nothing else to do but pray. The Bible says she's, she's filled with bitterness. She's weeping. She asked God what she did to anger him. God, why are you doing this to me? What have I done? I've I've, I've obeyed all the commandments. I've I've been a good wife. I've I've done what I'm supposed to do. What have I done to bring your anger to me? And then she vows a vow to God. She begs. She prays. She cries before God, and it seemed like heaven was silent. Her life feels miserable. She has failed at the one thing That mattered, and every day she's reminded of it. Where do you feel like that? Where do you feel like I've just, I I don't measure up to anybody in this area? I've done what I can, I just, I can't get ahead, I can't, I'm just, I'm not doing what's expected of me. Where are you inwardly roaring this morning? Where's the hurricane in your soul that makes you feel like Hannah? You know, a lot of times it, it isn't. Like it's like Hannah's situation, you know. Hannah didn't sign up for her hurt. It just happened to her. She didn't do anything wrong. She's just this is just life. A lot of times that's where we, you know people people get sick, people die, and it's not because of anything we've done or they've done. It's just it's life. But we feel like God, I've begged you, I've I've cried to you, I've I've tried to, I've made vows to you, I've I've asked you to fix this and just seems like God's not listening. Maybe, like Hannah, you're tempted to turn to something else to fill the void. She, she turned to the affection of her husband. You know, maybe she was barren, but at least she was the most loved wife. At least she got double mashed potatoes at dinner or double Eskimo kisses, however it's really supposed to be interpreted. Maybe you try to succeed in other areas to make up for the one area that you are lacking in. Whatever you do to quiet the hurricane, you're going to find, just like Hannah, it doesn't work. We are all going to face hurt like Hannah at some point in our life, which brings us to the second point. Not only her hurt, I want to look at her hope. Look at verse 9 again. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now, this is the turning point of the story. She got up. She's knocked down. Everything's going wrong. She's in hurting. She's pain. She's tormented. But she gets up. This isn't a random. It's not like after dinner, Hannah got up and went to the, to the living room to relax because, you know, all of Panini's kids can clean up the dishes. No. It's a decisive action. She made a choice To do something. And what did she do? Verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid and will give unto thee thy handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. She says, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. Lord, if you'll answer my prayer, I'll give this, this child back to you. And look, she says she's not going to let a razor touch his head. She's not saying, God, if you give me a son, I'll let him grow long, luscious, beautiful locks that all the girls are going to be so jealous of because he's got beautiful, long hair. No, she's saying, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to take, ta- take a Nazarite vow for him. He was going, she was going to dedicate her son to temple service. In these days, if you wanted to be a priest... Two things, you had to do one of two things. You had to be born a Levite. Born a Levite, you want to be a priest? You're a priest, no problem. If you're not born a Levite, you can't just go to seminary, take a few classes, get ordained, and poof, you're in the ministry. No, no, no. You got to take a Nazarite vow. What the Nazarite vow was doing, there's a lot of things that went with it, but what it was doing is you are publicly renouncing whatever tribe you were born into. You're born in the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Dan, Whatever tribe you're born into, you are renouncing them. You are saying, though they are not my people, I am, they are not my family. My mother, my father, I am abandoning them. I am leaving. They are not my family. I am totally giving myself to God. So she is telling God, God, I'm, I need this son. I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm tormented because I don't have a child. And if you give me a child... I'll give him up and let you have him. I'll let him renounce me as his mother. I'll miss everything that comes from having a child. I'll miss all the benefit of having a son and I'll give him right back to you. She was giving up everything that she was going to get for having a son in the first place. He's not going to grow up in her house, he's going to grow up in the temple. She's not going to see his first Little League game. She's not going to be able to, you know, have, have Christmas elf-on-the-shelf traditions with him. She's not going to have the tooth fairy thing going on. She's saying, God, you give me a child, and I will, I will gladly give him up for you. Everything I long for, everything I want, everything I think I need, I'm going to get rid of it. She's giving up her security in her old age, she is gaining, giving up everything that she would gain from having a son. Let's look at verse number 18. She said, let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. We skipped a lot in there. You know, she finishes praying. Eli, the priest there, is like, man, this woman is drunk. Uh, say, why did you think that? Because women don't come to the temple to pray. They're not spiritual. They don't love God. No, that's not why. Because uh, she's sitting there praying, and she's just praying quietly, and he can't understand. It. He's like, man, this woman's drunk. And he says, woman, don't come to the church drunk no more. Always a good, you know, advice. Don't come to church drunk, all right? So you just don't come to church drunk. Don't, you know, God's going to smite you. And she explains what's going on, and she finishes praying. She gets up. My Bible says her countenance has changed. She's she's not pregnant. God hasn't given her an answer, but she is no longer sad. She has found joy. Now, she will get pregnant by the end of the chapter, but right now she is experiencing joy before she knew that. The hold that bearing children had on her happiness was broken. Why? Because she found a new source of happiness. She says, "God, my my hopes, not in a kid. My hopes in you. My joy is not in a, a son. My joy is in you, Lord. My identity isn't as a mother. My identity is as a child of God." So we see her ho- her hurt, her hope. Third thing I want to look at. I want to look at her praise. Chapter number two. Hannah, she's had a son. He's been weaned, which means he's, he's no longer breastfeeding. He's been potty trained. He's pretty much, you know, self-sufficient. So he's been, but he's still, he's still a small child. We're talking, you know, maybe three or four years old. Not a, we're, she's not like she's taking him at 16. He's a young kid, four, five, six years old, very young. He's, she's taken him to the temple. She's given him to the priest. So she's had this child. She's weaned this child. And now she takes this child to the temple, gives him to Eli the priest, who we're going to see next week, was not a good dude. Gives him to Eli, leaves him, and what does she do? She sings a song of praise to God. Look at chapter 2, verse number 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord mine horn is exalted in the Lord my mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation there is none as holy as the Lord for there is none beside thee neither is there any rock like our God she says God my joy is not found in having kids anymore Lord my identity is not found in in being a mother anymore Lord my joy is found in you my identity is found in you God, you are a better source of security. You are a better source of identity. You are a better source of happiness than any amount of kids could have. She praises God for his wisdom, his strength, his beauty. She has realized, God, the ultimate treasure isn't having a family or having my identity on things of the earth. My greatest treasure is finding you in God. She has absolute approval and she says, "God, your opinion is the only one that matters." Her salvation was learning to find in God what she was seeking in having children. <clears throat> Look at verse number four, chapter two: <clears throat> "The bows of the mighty, the bows of the mighty men, are broken, and they that stumbled are are girded with strength." They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry cease, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. She is contrasting the different ways people find identity, security, and happiness. You know, there, there are two ways, basically what she is saying, there are two ways you can establish all these things. You can find your identity. You can find your happiness. You can find your security. One way is the way of pride. You do it on your own. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make my, something of myself. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make something of my future. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to do everything for me. Maybe it's through kids or beauty or talent or popularity or your ability to earn money. The other way is through faith. You lean into God and let him be the source of those things. And Hannah says if you seek it through pride, you're going to end up broken, poor, and hungry. But if we seek him in God, we'll end up strong, fruitful, and abundantly overflowing. Hannah has Samuel, and Samuel becomes the greatest priest and prophet Israel had ever had. Look at verse number five in chapter two. <clears throat> it says, They that were full hired themselves out for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that a barren had borne seven, and she had many children as wax tables. She says, God is, you know, she says that her, she was barren, and she has borne seven. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. Remember what Eli said, chapter 1? Baby, I'm better than a 1,000 sons. I'm better than 10,000 sons, baby. She's saying God is better than anything. You know, she gave me one son. He gave me one son, but that's, that's, that's completion. This son's going to be better than 10,000 because of what he's going to do for God, and I'm going to rely on God to do these things. And look at verse number 21, chapter 2. And the Lord visited Hannah, so she conceived... And bear three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. God is a good God that loves to bless his people. When Hannah changed her identity from bearer of children to daughter of the king, God blessed her. Now, the point of this text isn't telling you that if you get your heart right, God's going to give you everything you've ever asked for. It's not like, well, you don't have that big mansion because your heart needs to get right with God. As soon as you get your heart right with God and pray for that big mansion, God's going to give it to you. He may, he probably won't, but he might, I don't know. The point of this text is telling us that God is a God who loves to bless his people when we lay down our idols. When we lay down our idols we find that God is all we've been looking for. He is greater than anything we could ever ask for on this earth. And we find true fulfillment in Him. Final thing I want to look at this morning we've seen her hope, we've seen her praise, we've seen her hurt. We're going to look at her promise. There is a, a parallel between Hannah's story and Israel's story. Like, like Hannah, Israel sought their identity, their security, and their happiness in something besides God. They looked for it in a king. God told Hannah, those things aren't found in a son, they're found in me. God's going to tell Israel, those things aren't found in a king, they're found in a relationship with me. But here's the thing, there's a parallel in Hannah's story and your story. She looked to a son. Israel looked to a king. What are we looking for? Where are we looking to find the joy that's only found in God? Where are we looking to find the meaning in life that's only found in the relationship with God? Where are we looking to find our identity that's only found as a child of the king? What one thing do you think you need to have to have a good life? You know, your righteousness isn't found in your works. Your blessing from God and your acceptance of God isn't found in how good you are, how much you come to church, how much you teach or how much you sing or anything you do for God. It's only found in what Jesus has done for you, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Your identity is his child. Your identity is a servant to the king. Security is in knowing that God holds your hand and God always keeps his promises. Your happiness is only found in doing his will over yours and knowing he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. But there's also a parallel between Hannah's story and Jesus' story. You know, Jesus' story begins with another Pregnancy. More impossible than Hannah's. Hannah's just barren, and God can open a woman at any time. Mary's a virgin. Barren women can conceive and have children. Virgins cannot. Not possible. So it's an even more impossible pregnancy. Having a, And for her, having a child meant she was going to lose everything, that she found significance and security. See, being, being an unwed mother in this time was almost a death sentence. She would lose her reputation, she would be kicked out of her family, of her village, of her tribe. So she'd become an outcast. She'd face financial hardship like Hannah. Mary knew, though, that God was the greater source of her identity, her security. And her happiness. And she expressed her hope like Hannah did in a song of praise in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he had regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength in his, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the Im- imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seeds and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There are echoes of Hannah's song. In Mary's song, both of them, Mary, facing an an uncertain future, she's given birth. To, yeah, yeah, she's given birth to the Son of God, to God in the flesh. But who's really going to believe her? You know, oh Mary, you got knocked up. Oh no, this is the Messiah. You know, nobody's going to believe that. They're going to think. So she's like, I- I'm losing my. I mean, it was so bad. Joseph almost got rid of her. Joseph almost cast her out like, I'm, you know, she's cheating on me. I'm done. God had to come to Joseph and say, no, it's good, Joseph. Don't worry about it. But her, her future, her security, her everything's gone because she's having this baby. Hannah. Yeah, God gave her a son, but she's giving it back to him. The joy she was going the security she was going to have, the identity as his mother, gone. And both of them Say, God, our joy, our fulfillment, our happiness, our salvation is not in this. It's in you. You are where we find true peace and true meaning. You know, Hannah gave birth to Samuel, who became Israel's greatest priest and greatest prophet. Mary gave birth to the one who is the high priest, final prophet, the king of kings. You know, we want to read this story and say we're not like, you know, we're not like Hannah. Or we you know say we are like Hannah. She prayed. God answered her. So if I pray, God's gonna answer me. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't, you know, get right with God and he'll give you everything your heart desires. The point of the story is look to God. For your true needs. Look to Jesus for true fulfillment. Like Hannah, Jesus would be an outcast. He would be rejected. He would be condemned. Like Hannah, Jesus in his darkest moment would cry out to God for deliverance. But God would turn his back on him. God wouldn't answer that prayer of Jesus. Why? So to handle real shame. Our shame could be taken away forever. Our shame is our sin, our rejection of God. See, God ignored Jesus so I could be restored. See, our real need isn't to fulfill some ideal our culture or our family or our own hang-ups put on us. Our real need is to be restored to God, to walk with him in fellowship, to hear from him daily, to talk to him daily, to read his. That is what our soul truly aches for. And that's what Jesus did for us. He absorbed the wrath of God for my sin and your sin. When he died on the cross, he was buried and rose again to redeem us to God the Father. He did for us, we could never do. And he accomplished for us what we really need. See, Hannah's story isn't about God answering a prayer and giving her a son. It is God giving her something better than a son. It's about God giving her and us eventually Jesus. About God giving us fellowship with him. That was her hope. That's where our hope is as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you for today you've given us. We thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity, the privilege that we have this morning to come together. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.